This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. Joining me today to discuss the administration's recent decision to request the World Trade Organization temporarily waive patent or IP intellectual property rights in order to distribute more rapidly the COVID-19 vaccine worldwide is Priti Krishnel, who's the co-founder of Initiatives for Medicines, Access, and Knowledge, or IMAC. Ms. Krishnel, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Ms. Krishnel's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, last October, India and South Africa appealed to the World Trade Organization to temporarily waive patent or IP rights such that COVID-19 production distribution worldwide could be accelerated. The Trump administration opposed the waiver. In early May, the Biden administration announced it would support a waiver, though opposed by EU and others, but supported by 100 of the 164 World Trade member organizations as well as supported by over 100 House Democrats and per survey polling, approximately 60% of likely U.S. voters. The World's TRIP uh, program, which uh, formally uh, is termed Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, but the World Trade Organization's TRIP program strictly enforces patent monopolies for a minimum of 20 years. And the Biden administration's decision was clearly in response to the overwhelming evidence that comparatively the Global South was being vaccinated at dramatically slower rates. For example, as of a month ago, 80% of vaccines had gone to those in high or upper income countries, while only 0.2% had gone to those in low income countries. Today, the news is that President Biden will announce the administration will purchase another 500 million vaccines in addition to the 80 million already purchased to be distributed over the next year to 100 countries. So with that is brief uh, background or introduction. Again, with me today to, to discuss uh, what's otherwise termed patent hoarding is Ms. Priti Christel. So with that, I know your time is limited and you've been extremely busy uh, the past uh, five weeks. So let's get into this. Um, you stated in an Inc. interview recently that you were shocked, quote unquote, when the announcement was made. Uh, your shock is understandable. Because in the same interview, your colleague noted that the U.S. had never supported any attempt by the Global South countries to relax IP rules. So this is really a remarkable decision, is it not? It is. We find that this decision is by the Biden administration is really historic, actually. We've never seen anything like it. Usually, uh, our government here in the U.S. through the United States Trade Representative is pushing low and middle income countries to adopt patent standards that are more in line with ours, even in the face of other global pandemics. And so we really welcome this announcement. Um, It shows that our country is now recognizing that in select moments in emergencies like this one, there is a need to look more closely at the intellectual property system and bring back some of the balance we so urgently need. Uh, thank you. Let's go into the process. Um, if you can explain it and when might a decision be made and 
to what extent do all the 164 members, member countries rather, have to support this decision? So how does this work? Sure. So this week was an important turning point for this conversation. There was a TRIPS Council meeting yesterday and the day before. Uh, and there was also, you know, Europe is one of the, the European Union is one of the lone holdouts to supporting the waiver now that President Biden has mm-hmm. signaled America's support. So uh, what we're waiting to see is the TRIPS Council is now negotiating both the waiver proposal, but also the EU has made a counter proposal. So there's still a risk that the council's report is going to be significantly tempered, especially by the EU. What we are hoping is that an agreement is swiftly reached and that the TRIPS Council submits its report to the General Council of the World Trade Organization at its next meeting uh, towards the end of July, on July 21st and 22nd. Now, in terms of timeline, the director of the World Trade Organization has indicated that she thinks that this is going to take until December. And that's why my colleagues and I, you know, a few weeks ago in the British uh, British Medical Journal, BMJ, we put out an editorial saying that there's really um, a need for governments to come together and recognize that the IP waiver is just one step in a much longer process of what it's going to take to get shots in arms. The waiver needs to be swiftly discussed. It needs to be as simple and uncomplicated as possible. It needs to be for a reasonable duration of time. And it needs to limit the ability of manufacturers to start engaging in really complicated litigation, which is what we've seen for treatment and vaccine scale-up worldwide consistently. Um, We need just a really straightforward set of rules. The reason I think this is historic is because if we are able to come to some understanding and agreement uh, as the member states of the world who participate in the World Trade Organization, this could set a significant precedent for future global emergencies, or even, you know, COVID's going to be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So can we get to this um, set of rules that is needed? So when the next pandemic comes around, for example, we're not talking this much about things like IP. There are going to be scientific challenges and there are going to be man-made challenges. Let's get the man-made challenges out of the way. Okay, thank you. So there is at one level... Uh, this uh, approval from uh, World Trade, and we could get in the history of the World Trade Organization found in the mid-90s, and um, there's a significant pressure for all countries to sign it, something like 60 separate agreements, but we'll leave that aside. Let me ask you, there is the practical issue of technological transfer, so can you explain that? So even if there is legal approval to uh, relax patent rules, uh, there's still this practical issue of uh, uh countries being able to do this because manufacturing these vaccines is not easy. Right. And so I think that it's really important to note here that the request that is coming in from South Africa, India, and the other countries was, is not, and was not about vaccines. It is about all medical products, treatment, diagnostics, vaccines, all medical products. And when you look across that spectrum There are uh, specific examples that we have of products where when we rely on this system, let me back up for a minute, actually. 
I want to flag that what is at the heart of this conversation and this debate right now is whether we do things under the old model, which heavily relies on single suppliers to make decisions for the whole world. So advocates like myself, based on our years in the field, seeing where the barriers have popped up, we don't believe that that single supplier model where we leave these decisions on how to achieve global scale up in the hands of a single company, we just don't think that they've worked. They haven't mm -hmm. worked for treatment and they haven't worked for vaccines. So I just want to say up front that the request from the countries is an IP waiver across medical products. You know, America, we've now signaled that we would support vaccines, but um, I think the waiver would be very effective in meeting the needs on the ground, especially when you look at the fact that India and Brazil, for example, in the last seven days, there have been 30,000 deaths. Um, many African countries are starting to surge. Eight have reported now a surge of, you know, over 30% in new cases in the last seven days. So the immediate needs on the ground urgently are for testing and treatment, and those needs are not being met. When it comes to vaccines, absolutely. Um, I think in the U.S. also, we tend to really focus on mRNA vaccines, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, it's just our default. But we also have to, you know, broaden our perspective, I think, to understand that there are other vaccines also um, that will also be appropriate for use in low and middle income countries. Not all of these are going to require the same level of technology transfer. So, again, why the IP waiver becomes so important. When it comes to mRNA, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's a need for waiving IP. And I want to emphasize here, that's not just about patents. There are many forms of intellectual property, including clinical trial data, trade secrets. And so the waiver becomes an important way to streamline processes um, across products and countries. And then we are absolutely going to need our companies to step up, share technology, um, and engage in more global cooperation than we have seen for vaccines of the past. Okay, thank you. I'm sure you're well aware Pfizer's made this comment over and again that its vaccine requires 280 components, 86 suppliers in 19 countries. So there is um, some expertise required. I will note pre-WTO, uh, 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 the pharma industry, which is why we find this, say ourselves in the position where pharma tried to impose rules in developed countries that slowed the diffusion of pharma know-how. So we have that legacy now biting us. Let's spend a moment on, and you're right, it's not just the vaccine per se. Uh, there are other drugs, ventilators, PPE, et cetera, that all are part of the equation. Um, mm -hmm. And I will say, too, that uh, there is precedent for this. Uh, the example I often given is uh, penicillin production uh, during uh, World War II. Let me go to, I'm sure you're well aware uh, probably wish you weren't as well aware of the industry as, as, as vehemently pharma as vehemently uh, beyond the EU. Of course, the industry is opposed strongly. Mm -hmm. In fact, I wasn't surprised after May 5th. I mean, you could have pulled out a stopwatch and timed how quickly, uh, pharma bio and others would come out with press releases, <laughs> but they've, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the arguments are and feel free to, uh, uh respond to any of these would compromise safety. Uh, or phrased another way, waiving patents um, uh, is impossible practically uh, since, again, here's the point, manufacturers in poor countries aren't careful or safe enough. Uh, 
uh, it's difficult, if not possible, for them with regard to the requisite, as we just discussed, tech transfer, would undermine mm-hmm. response to future pandemics, and on and on and on. What's your general overall rebuttal to uh, these objections? Mm-hmm. You know, every time I hear counterarguments about the TRIPS waiver, uh, I think that it's important that we have a public discourse on this. Um, as especially as the health policy community or the economic policy mm-hmm. community, these are these are big turning points for our country, and I think conversation is important and it should be robust. I personally don't have a lot of time for the capacity and capability argument. I've spent the last twenty years working with my team, many of whom are intellectual property lawyers from the private sector or pharmaceutical industry scientists who have worked on the private sector side. Uh, we find the capacity and capability argument to be astonishing in its narrow-mindedness and, frankly, in its racism. We've worked on the ground in with companies uh, mm-hmm. and health ministries and patent offices across all of the emerging markets. We think this is a fear tactic. It's simply not true. Capacity and capability exist. There are brilliant scientists all over the world There are manufacturing facilities that could be ready to go if we stopped talking about what's not possible and started focusing on what is possible. Uh, You know, I I think that there's another argument that's made, too, which is worth talking about, which is that IP has never been a barrier to access. Uh, And I think we we know from HIV that that's not true for treatment Mm -hmm. and for many other diseases. But I think it's worth lifting up how the market works in the vaccine context. Uh, When you look at something like the PCV vaccine for pneumonia, um, Pfizer uh, enforced its patents on the pneumococcal vaccine through legal proceedings in India and South Korea. Global health actors tried and failed to ask Pfizer not to assert those patents. Now, pneumonia remains the leading cause of death globally for children under five years old. Um, And many of the emerging markets have low coverage because of the high price of the vaccine. Uh, And so this is I'm not saying this to, you know, um, single out Pfizer. Uh, I think this is how the market works. IP is there to be a monopoly right. It is there to make sure that you are the person that decides who can be on the market and who doesn't get to be on the market. And that's the whole purpose of IP litigation. Uh, and so there is no special pandemic scenario where companies right now are not gonna engage in IP litigation to keep other competitors off the market. What we're asking for in this you know, unprecedented situation, this global pandemic is we need to take a fresh look at the rules because if we leave it up to companies to even voluntarily try to do the right thing. So let's remember what happened with Gilead with remdesivir last year. Um, You know, this was six weeks after the pandemic really hit home here in the U.S. And Gilead said, we are going to sign agreements. We just signed agreements with five different generic drug makers to produce generic remdesivir so that other manufacturers can supply many of the low-income countries around the world. And on this news, Gilead's shares dropped 3.5% in one day, and then by the end of the week, its shares had plunged by 5%, representing a total market cap loss 
of over $6 billion. So for me, this was a very important moment because what it told me was, even if a manufacturer, an American company in this moment tries to do the right thing, that's not what our market incentives are set up to reward. So this is actually a very profound conversation that we are having as a country and as the global community in this moment. Right. It's about, this is the standard, socializing risk and privatizing profits. I will say, uh, just to add, um, Moderna, as you're well aware, announced in October uh, it would not enforce its COVID-19-related patents. Uh, and relative to Gilead, if we had time, I'd ask you about your experience with Gilead in India, uh, which is quite <laughs> quite different than the experience you just, or the history you just noted. Let me go. I did hold out uh, the issue of money. Um, I, I, I do want to ask about, it's it's actually surprising. So the Congress, as you know, is appropriate already, $16 billion to scale up production. Public Citizen has estimated a cost of $25 billion to produce 8 billion doses in regional hubs, meaning throughout the world. So mm-hmm. it, this is really not uh, a money issue or a cost issue, considering the benefit or the return on the investment. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. When you think about the number of lives that could be saved, um, the $9 trillion, I think, was the last estimate I saw about you know, the cost to the global economy, right. don't do this. I, I think the cost benefit analysis is pretty straightforward. But I think, again, coming back to the IP issue, this is a question of do we hold on to the technology or do we share it? Because that's going to make this go faster and that's actually going to make it successful. We have never seen a single supplier model. We have never seen a voluntary model work to treat or vaccinate at the scale we need in this moment. Mm-hmm. So we need a different set of rules. We need a different understanding about how knowledge flows and who it flows to. Right. And to put the appropriate word on all this, the insanity of all this is that relative to cost, um, we do know despite uh, the success of these pharma companies to come up uh, with these uh, vaccine formulas, most of their success is is the result of public funding. I did read the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, or the establishment or establishing it thereof, uh, has been estimated to be ninety seven percent public funded. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it, it is the case that the public has already invested, or you could say, paid for, uh, to put it more bluntly. Uh, these vaccines. Um, let me go to the more general issue, and you've been talking about it to a large extent, uh, uh, this issue or problem generally, and that is, and I'll, I'll quote a, a comment or two you've made in previous interviews. Um, again, the problem here most generally is, uh, we've, we are prioritizing intellectual property rights over, over public health or population health. Uh, you've stated, Quote unquote, we have to remember that innovation exists to serve people, not the other way around. Um, and that, that comes to, uh, this, uh, statement you've made also recently. Uh, the president, Biden, must pick a, uh, patent and trademark office, PTO director, who will privatize equity. And that, of course, comment on its face resonated. But of course, the Biden administration is all about uh, driving racial and slash, and you could describe it otherwise as health equity. 
Um, could you say more about that? And where do you think, I mean, this is sort of the lessons learned question. I mean, will the lesson right. learned manifest and how PTO goes forward uh, such that again, and we know that, uh, the, um, the next pandemic's around the corner. 80% of emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic, no surprise. Um, and in fact, a study was just published recently by Ox, uh, 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 Farm and others, I think, that said that basically in the next 20 or 30 years, we're looking at, uh, uh, the effect of two COVIDs per year uh, relative to other sort of global problems that we're experiencing. So, uh, mm-hmm. What's what? What hopefully can we learn uh, via this lesson from a longer-term policy reform perspective? Right. So I think that this administration has made a commitment to prioritizing equity across all of its operations. Uh, we still have not seen a PTO director, a patent and trademark office director, be named, which we're advocating, you know, along with many other organizations that we want to see a speedy appointment Mm -hmm. and we want to get to the hard work of reimagining the PTO, which historically has not prioritized equity uh, in a really um, primary way in its operations. Uh, You know, the way I think about this is there's not really a difference between the healthcare worker in Angola right now facing the surge and wishing that they had the COVID-19 vaccine, or the person right here in America um, who's unable to afford their insulin and is making really difficult Mm trade-offs at the household level. Um, We have been raising, including in congressional testimony last month, that the patent system has moved far astray from its original intention. Uh, The number of patents has been rising exponentially, you know, on the top 10 best-selling drugs in America right now, there are over 131 patents being filed per drug. Many are being granted. That's lengthening the right. exclusivity period, you right. know. Evergreening, yes. 20 years, yes. exactly. Yes. And going to almost 40 years for a single drug product. And in the later years, close to patent expiry, what we're seeing is the sharp price hikes. So any solution to our drug pricing crisis needs to be willing to address the patent system's role in driving high drug costs for Americans. And we're really eager to see a new PTO director be named who's going to center that as part of their agenda. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're, we're a long way from the no patent for the uh, oral polio vaccine uh, days, <laughs> I suppose. I, I, if we had time, I, I did want, you know, to, this, this conversation, when you get down the road on it, so pharma suing Nelson Mandela, which I thought is a low light. We probably, if we had time to uh, spend, um, relative to the Congress, just maybe my final question, time permitting here. Um, you know, it's noted that the way the system works now, it really destroys the purpose or the incentive for public investment. I mean, if we're going to uh, allow these uh, companies to leverage uh, publicly funded investment to bring a product to market and then look at, you know, double digit returns, um, and particularly, you know, you know, the, the fact that Uganda and Bangladesh are paying more for the vaccine than, you know, uh, developed countries, that's a whole other issue. Um, do you think there's opportunity other than regulatory or legal uh, relative to you know, how do we just go, how do we just understand public investment in this space going forward? 
This is a really important question, and we've been talking to investors about it. I think uh, we've been talking to investors about it, and we've been talking to people in government about it. You know, when you look at the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, the latest report that I saw is that $100 billion of the research investment came from public sources. Mm -hmm. And I think people have been raising this for a long time, even before COVID, right? The majority uh, of our drugs have some form of uh, public investment right. going into it. I think it's time for a new set of rules. I think that there's absolutely no reason in this moment that Moderna, which received $2.5 billion from the government in the form of R&D uh, funding and advanced purchase commitments, which is nearly 100% of what it took to bring this vaccine to market, there's no reason that they should have uh, sole control over where that technology and those trade secrets and everything else we need mm -hmm. um, the ramp up manufacturing, there's no reason that they should be the sole decision makers. So I think it's clearly time for a new set of rules. I hope our decision makers move swiftly to codify that. We're hearing even from actors in global public health uh, in Europe who historically have never called for a different set of rules. You know, we saw a meeting uh, happen two weeks ago in Geneva where leading figures in global public health acknowledged that this was a mistake that there were not conditionalities, um, access conditionalities placed alongside this funding. I think I would go a step farther and say that if we are co-funding or primarily funding uh, a product to be brought to market, we should be co-owners in that product and we should definitely own the intellectual property rights so that we can um, have a more direct say in what happens next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for that. We're, we're, we're going to limit the time of this discussion. I know you're very busy, uh, but I do appreciate, uh, uh, these 25 minutes. So thank you again. Uh, best of luck certainly over the next uh, two months. Um, and I hope we make substantial long-term progress in this, uh, realm. So best of luck to you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.